On behalf of the team from Togo West Africa, a hearty bonjour to you. Uh, Katie and I spent the last week dusting off high school French, and neither of us are getting an A in Miss Lori Jensen's French class, so <laughs> we tried, though. Uh, I, I figured, though, that you guys wanted to hear from Katie more than from me this morning, and uh, I just wanted Katie to come up and share just a, a brief thought on what impacted you from the trip. Yes, a brief mm. thought. He gave me a minute, but he gave me a microphone too. So, ha ha ha. No, in in short, amazing, right? It's it was just amazing. Um, one one uh, thing that really stuck out to me that was striking during our visit was our missionary team who is there. Um, we got to sit around at night and just talk to them for hours and they are high capacity people. They have high vision. They're so intentional, so fun to talk to. Um, and because of this vision, they their vision encapsulates creating a community in Togo of Christian leaders. Um, and you can see that in all of the structures that they build. So for example, I got to go out with a 14-year-old girl named Marie, who's a Togolese Christian. And we went around her village and I got to watch her go to all of her neighbors and friends and invite them to church for that Sunday. So I was just sitting back watching her lead in her faith. And then a few hours later, we went to Bible study with all of these other Togolese teenagers, and they were developing questions out of a Bible passage to lead the younger kids in through that Bible passage. And then on Sunday morning, they were leading the kids again, and they do this type of leadership structure in all areas, mm -hmm. um, with the men and with the women. Um, and to see the Togolese Christians, it's so beautiful because, you know, in all areas, Christians should stand out, but in the community that they're in that is completely saturated with voodoo, um, they really, really stand out. So it's a beautiful thing to see these, especially for me, teenagers willing to stand out, willing to lead, and um, and just be on on mission for the Lord. It, it was beautiful. So Amen. We were so glad to get to go and see it firsthand. Well, thank so. you, sweetheart. Thanks. You did a great job. <laughs> She's More awesome. More than a minute. <laughs> yeah. I did something dangerous there. Harry told me a long time ago, he said, never speak after Katie gets up to speak. <laughs> she always outshines you. And I said, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. The picture you see on the screen here, this is uh, a group of pastors being trained and being church planters uh, through an organization called the Timothy Initiative. Uh, this was really eye-opening for us um, you know, they say when you go into the missions field that your goal should be working yourself out of a job, and that's what they're doing here in Togo, West Africa. The, the missionaries provide maybe the structure around the building, or maybe they're handing a playbook, but it's the Togolese who are running the place. They're the ones, you know, winning people to Christ, discipling others, raising up pastors, planting churches. And that was just inspiring for us as we watched and participated in the work in that way. You may know this, but uh, 
I took a team to Togo, West Africa in 2014. There was just a couple cool stories I want to share with you from then and now. One of the pictures that I have here is me with a, a pastor named Pastor Alex, and he is the pastor of New Life Añejo. We went and visited three churches. This was the first that we visited on Sunday morning. And he, he called me over to introduce himself to me, and he said, you know, I remember you. You were here on the day that I was baptized. So our team got to witness that. And here we are nine years later, and Alex is probably the most influential pastor amongst these works with the missionaries in Togo. He is leading their kind of flagship church, New Life Church. He's raised up pastors who have raised up pastors. So if you ever question, can the Lord kind of advance me in my faith in a short amount of time, the answer is absolutely, he can. The other picture I want to show you is Victor. Victor was just 18 years old when we visited in 2014. We affectionately called him Little Victor at that time. If you're taking a look at Victor, Victor is no longer Little Victor. He's a pretty full guy. I think he could probably pick me up and throw me over a car if he wanted to. Victor has, because of the discipleship that he's undergone, done something that does not happen in Togo, West Africa. He has risen up from poverty. I was asking Josh about that. He said there's just almost zero instances of someone being born in abject poverty who is able to kind of then transcend that. Victor is now... Uh, an owner and operator of his own contracting business. And he's using that to leverage it for the gospel. He is overseeing all of the building of their major churches, of the buildings that they're utilizing for other purposes with the ministry. And he's being incredibly generous as a church member with his financial support. Josh was telling me just a few years ago that the Lord put it on Victor's heart that he needed to give sacrificially and purchase three motorcycles. Now, in this economy, that is incredibly sacrificial for giving. And the reason he bought motorcycles is that's the tool that pastors use to get into remote villages to bring the gospel for the first time. The village where you saw us standing and, and talking about the work of the church, Pastor Etienne rode a motorcycle into that village. He does not live there locally. He has gone a great distance, if you will, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged, church. You know, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, that let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We have been involved with this work since the beginning. It was founded in 2009. We've been committed to doing good in our partnership with it. And God is multiplying the ministry there in a way that just is incredible to me. Let's open our Bibles. We're looking at Luke chapter 18. And I just want to thank the tech people. I messed up and said Luke 8, and they fixed it for me, so they're great. We're in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. You can keep your finger on verse 31. This series we're looking at, I'm calling it His Last Days, and on the build-up to Easter, we're in the Gospel of Luke, looking at four vignettes 
four stories to help us reflect on who Jesus is, the cross, and the resurrection. As you know, the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, it's called Holy Week. Here's the deal about Holy Week. It's the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. Okay? So that means that as a Christian, if I'm following Jesus, that that week in my calendar is super significant. I should slow down and reflect on it. Dallas Willard likes to say that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. So I can become so familiar with the story of Easter that it's just kind of like a little object on the shelf that I really don't know that much about. I should actually slow down every Holy Week, go through the motions of meditating upon the work of Christ, deepening my affections for him, Take that timeline out during Holy Week. Pray to the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Memorize the passage. I'm telling you, we've got to get Scripture into our hearts. The Lord's convicted me personally on that. It's not easy for me to memorize Scripture. But G.K. Chesterton said, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. (laughs) So, if you're not great at memorizing, memorize badly with me. That's okay. Let's pick up with the context of Luke 18. Now, Luke is a travel gospel. James alluded to this. It's a travel gospel because between Luke 9 all the way to Luke chapter 19, you go through this section of Luke that scholars call a travel narrative. It picks up in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, with these consequential words. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What is Luke trying to tell us here? Well, he wants us to understand that Jesus determinedly walked to the cross. He wasn't like some victim of cruel fate who didn't understand or know what was about to happen to him. Uh, The false charges, the mock trial, the brutal beatings, the bloodletting, the nailing to the cross. Jesus decidedly walked in that direction. In Luke's gospel, Jesus overtly prophesies about his death three times. And just before the story that we're going to look at this morning is the third time that Jesus predicts his death. Let's read that together. I want you to see what he says in this prophecy. Jesus said, uh, Luke 18.31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This side of the story, sometimes we look at the disciples when they're receiving this very direct message from Jesus, and we ask ourselves, why were they just so obtuse? Come on, he couldn't have been more clear with what was about to happen. How come they couldn't get to the message? How come they couldn't connect the dots? Well, here's the deal. This was beyond their ability to grasp 
theologically. They didn't have a category at this time in their mind for a suffering Messiah. They had a category for a triumphant Messiah, but the, 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 the week that led up to the cross on Friday night, that cross took them totally by surprise. Now, on their end, they struggle with theologically grasping the meaning of the story. On our end, as I just said before, we have become so familiar with the story that it's become unfamiliar to us. We've lost the awe of the Son of God living the life that we couldn't live, walking through the streets of Jerusalem, being nailed to a cross and rising again from the dead. Uh, we got to be careful on both sides of that story. So we pick up our story, and it's really a story about a blind man. Jesus is on the last leg of his journey. He's traveled, and he's about to reach Jerusalem. He stops off at Jericho. Now, Jericho at this time is really two cities. There's an old city, and then there's a new city that Rome has built. It is a great place for a person to beg from, especially the week before Passover. Why? Because pilgrims are bringing their, their offerings, they're heading to Jerusalem to celebrate, and part of their religious structure is to give alms to help the poor. So this blind man wakes up, it's like any other day, He's probably found somewhere outside that he can sleep on the ground. He gets up, dusts himself off, and he starts tapping his way to the front gate of Jericho. And here's like this commotion and this stir. Uh, you know, when rabbis would walk from place to place, there was an entourage that came with them. They were, pro they, they were somewhat like celebrities, if you will. People wanted to capture a word from them, maybe even get a touch from them. So this blind man notices that something is different. We pick up in verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd Going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Don't miss this. Jesus' reputation is preceding him. Just because, uh, you, you know, you throw out a name and even a location where someone's from doesn't mean that we always know who that person is. This Jesus of Nazareth has been making a name for himself. The name has actually made its way all the way down to the lower echelons of society. A beggar at the roadside of Jericho has probably heard first-person accounts of people who have heard the authoritative teaching of Jesus, seen Jesus heal people in their presence, and free people from demon possession. In fact, this Jesus has done things that no one in biblical history has ever seen before. He has given sight to the blind. In Luke chapter 4, when he was expressing his messianic purpose to his hometown in Nazareth, he said, I am here for the recovery of sight to the blind. Here's this beggar, he's sitting in the dust, and he's got all he needs to hear. He turns his beggar's wail into a cry of desperation. Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, in this singular phrase, you hear both desperation and faith come out of the same man's mouth. 
Desperation, because have mercy on me, is the cry of desperation from the psalmist who has nowhere else to turn but to God himself. If God doesn't show up, I will languish and die. Maybe you've been in that place in your spiritual walk before. Nowhere else to turn. You've tried to do it on your own. But now you know that unless God shows up in your world and does something, you're going to languish. At the same time, though, he calls him son of David. Now, do you know in all the Gospels, before this guy and after this guy, no one else calls Jesus the son of David? He's the only one who uses this title, which is overtly a messianic title. I am crying out to you, Jesus, in desperation. Have mercy on me. The psalmist cried because I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe. The people in the crowd, as this man is crying out, they get somewhat embarrassed. Verse 39, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Put yourself into the picture here for a minute. You have this crowd of people, this entourage following Jesus. They are just so excited. They've heard the stories about him. Maybe they've even walked with him for some time and They're hoping, like I said, for that word from him, another teaching from him, maybe a touch from him. And here is this this blind beggar sitting in the dust, sounding off, wailing from the ground. Someone stoops down and they just bark at him, shut up. What are you doing? We're trying to let Jesus talk. You know, Jesus doesn't have time for someone like you Just sit there and do what you came here for. Get your money, get your bread, and move on. Kind of a pitiful picture when you think about it. But what Luke is doing here by putting these things side by side is he's trying to create an irony for us in this gospel. You see, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of seeing people, and yet... There is only one person in the crowd who is seeing Jesus with 20-20 vision. It's this blind beggar sitting on the road. The disciples, they're kind of muttering in their brains about that depressed prophecy that Jesus has just expressed to them. This crowd of people, they've been walking with him, and they're still, you know, asking who is this Jesus? Well, some people say that he's Elijah, and other people think he's this, and other people think that. They've seen him do miracles, and they're hoping that maybe just one more miracle might produce the spark of faith in them. Then you have this beggar this blind man, crying out like a madman because he's convinced that Jesus is the answer to his deepest problem. Someone once bluntly asked Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? (laughs) Think about questions like that, and I'm like, Can you just have like a filter process in your brain? Can you like run it through like 10 times at least and then say it? Some people still say it sadly. 
But Helen Keller, her answer was brilliant to this person. She said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. You see, sometimes we see with our eyes, but we don't see with our hearts. And Luke's gospel takes you through the process of challenging you to see with your heart. He's telling us that the identity of Jesus is everything. Who is he? Why did he come? And as he exposes us to the identity of Jesus, then the next thing is going to be, okay, well, if Jesus is who we are declaring that he is, how does that inform your worldview? Like the decisions you make, how you choose to live, the moral implications of your life. What does it mean about your bank account? What does it mean about your time? What does it mean about your places of desperation? How do you turn to him? Where do you go when you're desperate? See, in this story, we learn something from a blind man. He knows that he needs to turn to Jesus because he can plainly see, despite the harsh criticisms, he knows that the only hope he has is Jesus. So he somewhat makes a fool of himself. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because if Jesus is the son of David, then you and I should want to go to extremes to get close to him whether it's looking like a fool in a crowd or other extremes. Katie and I, we had the pleasure of um, spending some time in Togo with Stephanie Alderman. That's JJ's little sister. Uh, Stephanie is right there in the middle. Incredible, incredible woman. She's a deep soul. She loves Jesus. She's humble. And her background is very interesting because her parents went to Togo back in the early 90s, which means Stephanie was raised there. They were like these pioneer missionary types. They dropped onto the scene. They didn't know the language. He was a bush pilot. They were just called by God, and they went. And I said, Stephanie, tell me about that. What was that like? That is a unique childhood. She said she loved it. Okay, well, why did you love it? Well, she said for couple of reasons. For one thing, when they were growing up, they had all kinds of animals. I mean, animals that I can't even remember to tell you about, but they had a lot of them. Uh, one being monkeys. And I got to tell you, church, I think monkeys are wretched little animals. Why anyone <laughs> would want to own a monkey is beyond me. But I guess, you know, when you're a little child, it must have been really cool. But she said the thing that impacted her more than anything was the ministry that she witnessed. One night, they're at the dinner table and they hear a knock on the door. This happened regularly, she said. Her father gets up from the dinner table, he goes, he answers the door, and there's this travel-weary man standing at the door. And her father says, well, what can I do for you? The man says, I've just walked over three hours because I heard that you were the man who can tell me about Jesus. So he tells him about Jesus. Uh, talking about extremes, right? I mean, this three-hour walk, that big of an extreme? I don't know, but I don't walk 10 minutes to do anything, right? I'm just like, that's a lot of work. So here you have this blind man 
crying out, here you have this man from a remote village walking three hours. And let me just tell you, in Togo, that's not a safe trip, necessarily. Why? Because if we could really see who Jesus is, we would go to extremes to get close to him. Now, I love the picture of what happens next in this story. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 40 begins, and it says, and Jesus stopped. You know, when you read through the Gospels, slow down a little bit and envision the scene. Jesus is walking along with this entourage. Think about everything we've been saying from Luke chapter 9 all the way to this point. He's had a determined focus. He's walking to Jerusalem. He has another 17 miles to go. He's literally carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders because he's heading towards the cross. And I can hear myself in this moment saying to this man, I am so sorry. I don't have time for you. I've got to put the needs of the many ahead of the needs of the one. And in one sense, nothing stops Jesus from accomplishing his mission. No opposition, no pleading from friends, no protest from Peter. But on the other side, he hears the cries of a blind beggar and he pauses his progress. And then he asks him a very obvious question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Hmm. I'm Peter. I'm standing next to Jesus. And I'm like, come on, Jesus. <laughs> like, he's sitting in the dust right now begging for bread because he's blind. What do you think he wants you to do for him? Is he asking the question because he doesn't know the answer? Of course not. He's asking the question because he wants to elicit a verbal faith response from the man. Church, this is what prayer is all about. God is the kind of God who loves to hear about your mundane problems. The problems that seem obvious. The problems that maybe you think he's too busy to listen to. God is the kind of God who pauses to hear from his children because he loves to hear vocalized, verbalized expressions of faith. Do you know that's what prayer is? I wouldn't be praying about something if I didn't believe God couldn't do anything about it. He wants to hear from you, to draw you closer to him so that you will deepen your reliance upon him. And that's why this guy says, Lord, I want to see, recover my sight. And Jesus hears genuine faith in that cry, and he says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now, that phrase, made you well, is an important phrase in the Gospels. It kind of has like two meanings at the same time. In one sense, it's talking about physical healing, but on the other side, it's also dealing with spiritual salvation. Because in the Gospels, the healing, physical healing miracles of Jesus are always pointing us to a deeper spiritual reality. You may know the story in Luke chapter 5 of the paralytic man. If you're not familiar with that story, I strongly encourage you to go and read it today. 
Now, in that story, when the paralytic man is lowered in front of Jesus, the first thing that he says to the man is, your sins are forgiven. What an odd thing to say when someone's being lowered to be healed. In fact, the Pharisees become hyper-cynical and critical in their own inner thought process. They think to themselves, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus confronts them. He says, why do you question in your hearts? Now that should have tipped the hand already. I just heard what you thought. That's kind of scary when you think about it. And then he goes on to say, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Church, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Of course. Hey, I could walk down Osterville Main Street in just a couple of minutes and just kind of, uh, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And it wouldn't mean a hill of beans because I have no right or authority to say that. But Jesus authenticates his right to say that with a miracle. Listen to what he says. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And what happened? Immediately, he rose and walked. So here in this story, let's go back to Luke 18 now. If Jesus can restore a man's sight in one sentence, then he can do far more than that. Why do you think we sing in songs like Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see? It turns out that physical ailments are not our deepest problem. And spiritually speaking, Jesus would point that out as he would heal people because they needed more than just physical healing. And if it's true that Jesus could heal this blind man physically, it's also more true that he can cure you spiritually. What is he looking for from you? Well, from this blind man, what do you want me to do? He's eliciting a faith response. He wants the same thing from you. And it's that faith response Believing in Jesus, seeing him for who he is, that ultimately leads to our total spiritual healing. Have you ever cried out to Jesus in faith? I mean, like, truly seen him for who he is, believed that he was the Messiah, that he's the Lord of the universe, and that he can save you spiritually? That's what he's looking for from you. As we wrap up the story in verse 43, we see this man's response after seeing Jesus. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Focus on the phrase, and followed him. Again, a little phrase, easy to gloss over. Such an impactful phrase in the Gospel of Luke. The truth is that the natural next step after you and I have seen Jesus is to become a disciple of Jesus. Now, discipleship in Luke's Gospel is following Jesus. 
What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to sit under his teaching and learn from him. And as I adopt his teaching into my worldview, I take on the character of Christ. His goal for your life is that you would live the life that Jesus would have lived if Jesus was living your life for you. That's what he wants for you. You know, that bracelet and, and, and acronym that we used to throw around a lot in the 90s that somewhat became overused, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That was actually a great question to be asking ourselves. What would Jesus do? Well, if I'm in this, if Jesus is in this conversation and he's about to tell this joke to elicit laughter, would he have told it? Or if he's on Amazon and he's kind of impulse buying and his credit card's maxed out and then he sees that thing he's always wanted that's now 20% off, would he have clicked? What would Jesus do? The natural response to seeing Jesus is following Jesus. That's what this blind man's showing us in this story. And, and this blind man, it turns out, isn't just any old blind man. In fact, as you go into Mark's gospel, he has a name. His name is Bartimaeus. And why does the gospel preserve his name? Well, many scholars believe it's because Bartimaeus became a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. Well, how does that happen? How does Alex become pastor of New Life Church in Añejo? How does Victor become a contractor who's leveraging his business for the sake of the gospel? How does Bartimaeus become a pillar in the church of Jerusalem? It's pretty easy. They followed him. Think of his story moving forward now. It says he followed Jesus, meaning he followed Jesus into what was to come. He walked through the arches of Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. He probably saw the horrors of the cross. He probably reveled and celebrated at the risen Jesus when he met him after the resurrection. I mean, talk about getting an eyeful, right? So, as you process this story of Bartimaeus, I think Luke wants you to ask yourself two significant questions. The first question is, have I seen? Have you seen? Have you come to the realization of who Jesus is? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? If all of that is true, then the second question is, am I following Jesus as a result? I want to say this this morning, church. Those two questions should never be separated from one another. They go hand in hand. If you've seen Jesus, you need to become a disciple of Jesus. You need to follow him. Dallas Willard said these words. He said, there is absolutely nothing in what Jesus himself or his earthly followers taught that suggests that you can decide to just Enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and then have nothing more to do with him. He says that mentality leads the impression that you can become what he calls a vampire Christian. What is a vampire Christian? 
Well, it's essentially saying this to Jesus. Jesus, just give me a little of your blood. I'm okay. I don't need to kind of grow into your character. I don't need to sit under your teaching or learn from you. In fact, if it's okay with you, all things considered, I'll be all set for the rest of my life, and I'll see you when I get to heaven. Can you imagine under any scenario that that's what Jesus had in mind as he was walking the streets of Galilee, as he was going to the cross, as he was laying down his life, as he was raising from the dead, as he was ascending? Is that what he wanted? The The key question that we need to keep asking ourselves is, how could anyone trust Jesus for forgiveness of sins while not trusting him with everything beyond that? If he can take care of something so significant as my eternal salvation, don't you think he understands how my bank account ought to work? And how I ought to use my discretionary time and and how my priorities ought to operate, and and what is best for me in terms of the things that I consume, and the way that I raise my kids, and what my dating life looks like, and how I interface with my spouse in my marriage. If Jesus is, if we've seen that he is who he says he is, it only makes sense that he is the subject matter expert on all of those things. And if that's true, then the reasonable response is to be like Bartimaeus, to drop everything and follow him, to get as close to him as I can. Rob, what does it mean to get close to Jesus? How do I do that? It's a great question. And I got to say, I've been thinking a lot about that question lately. I think we already know the answer. I think it's like, healthy living and financial management. Most of us know the answer to those things, but we what lack follow through. And you can't be a follower if you lack follow through. How do you follow him? Meet with him daily. Open the word. Jesus said, abide in me in John chapter 15. Do you abide in him? Are you grafted in? Are you receiving from him? Scripture memory. Remember, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. What about discipleship? I think Jesus wants us to meet with other Christians in smaller settings and grow in his word together and challenge one another and hold one another accountable. You know, I was thinking about this a lot lately because our culture, I mean, sometimes we're just kind of losing it. We say things like, well, I need to take a break from discipleship. Hmm. You imagine Peter walking with Jesus and looking over and saying, Jesus, I need to go home. I need a break from discipleship. What about the corporate gathering of the church? What about sitting under the word of God? What about incorporating ourselves as the family of God? Have you seen him and if you've seen him then Bartimaeus is pointing the way here he's saying drop whatever you're doing that's not as important to follow him